This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Regardless of your residency program year, the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Platform developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is right for you. Free to residents, ROC is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's been authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics. And residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. Get started today. Hello, all. Welcome back to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You are tuned into our board slash our OITE review series, and we are continuing on talking about some hand. And today we're going to talk about a little bit about nerve injuries and repair. You know, we're, we're just continuing down the OITE slash board trail. Now, if you want more in-depth discussion about this, check out our episode featuring Dr. D on nerve injuries. And we get really into the weeds about certain things. And uh, it's a really great episode. But you're tuned into our board slash OITE review featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. If you have not already, hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Nailed It Ortho. All right, everybody. Enjoy the episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. And when we're talking about these nerve injuries, a lot of things they sometimes give us EMG or nerve conduction velocity. But what is electromyography and what are some of the findings that are seen in nerve injury? Just so we can dissect these questions when they give us 18 million things. Yeah, this was not apparent to me early in residency. And it finally made sense once I had a dedicated hand rotation. I would hear my hand attendings talk about EMG and nerve conduction studies. And I thought that they were essentially the same thing, but they're not. So an EMG or an electro myography is exactly that. It's electrical pulses through the myo or the muscle tissue. So it detects axonal function at the neuromuscular junction. So this is more of a motor nerve sort of test. And for acute denervation, you're going to have a reduced motor unit potential recruitment pattern. At three weeks, you're going to have abnormal spontaneous activity. So you're going to have those fibrillations and positive sharp waves, like what we talked about with the axonomesis. Early renervation is considered polyphasic motor unit potential. So the motor unit is there, but it's polyphasic, meaning that how they are interacting or how these motor units at the neuromuscular junction are firing is kind of haphazard. It's not uniform. It's not like a normal muscle, but you can still see some activity at that neuromuscular junction. And then for the ones that have kind of reached their end for chronic denervation, you have decreased insertional activity. You're going to have an absent motor unit potential. So you're not going to see any function at that neuromuscular junction. And we don't even really have to go over the late reinnervation or reinnervation because it's going to act like a normal muscle at that point. Again, acute denervation is going to be reduced motor unit potential recruitment pattern. At three weeks, you're going to have abnormal spontaneous activity. So the muscles are going to try to activate through fibrillations, but it's not going to be a distinct muscle contraction. Early reinnervation polyphasic motor unit potentials, you see something there, but it's not complete. 
but then complete denervation is essentially a flat line, just like unfortunately in the ICU, a flat line for a patient, you're going to see a flat line for the neuromuscular junction on the EMG for chronic denervation. And then on the flip side of that, what is a nerve conduction velocity test or an NCV test examine? Yeah, so that's going to examine the large myelinated nerve fibers. It's going to help you determine the location and then how severe the nerve injury is. And so when you have demyelination of a nerve and you stimulate these nerves, you're going to have decreased amplitude, increased latency, or it's going to be slower and decreased conduction velocity. So remember when nerves are myelinated, they increased conduction velocity and they make things go faster. So when you have nerve demyelination, you'll see a decreased amplitude, increased latency, and a decreased conduction velocity. And if you have a nerve that's going to be transected, you won't have any response at all. And I remember I was on a PMNR and one of our PMNR guys does a lot of, you know, nerve conduction tests and EMGs. And he's like, Hey man, just try the shock. I was like, you know, like, all right, I guess. And so I think you put it on my ulnar nerve and shocked me. I was like, a hand probably like almost hit myself in the face, man. That stuff is <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. I have a patient. He's a polytrauma. He has he had a femoral neck shaft. He had a ulna shaft and he had other stuff that I fixed. But on the side of his ulna shaft fracture, he has like no radial nerve activity, but he had no like injury proximal. He had no lacerations or anything. And I'm getting a both an EMG and a nerve conduction just because he, I mean, he has wrist drop. He's barely firing his EPL. And I'm just like, I'm hmm. so confused because his ulna shaft is nowhere near his like radial nerve and his ulnar nerve is working totally fine. And so I am like, I wonder if he had like some sort of traction brachial plexus injury because of, I mean, he was a polytrauma. I think he got thrown out of a car or something like that, but Ooh. I'm like, I am just lost at like three months. He still has like no radial nerve function at all. It's pretty huh. disheartening, but yeah. yeah, it sucks. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Only thing I could think of would just be, just like you just said, like some traction injury to the brachial plexus when he was thrown out. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I don't know. That's strange. Maybe we can get some kind of results with this nerve conduction velocity test and see what's going on, you know? And so I guess, what is the indication to to operate on nerve injuries? You know, when you know, you're suspecting something or, you know, when are you going to operate on it? Mainly you're looking for like a sharp nerve transaction. So a, a knife sort of injury and not a bullet contusion sort of injury. We're looking for like knife style or sharp object injuries and then open large open trauma with concern for nerve injury. And then if there's direct trauma to a superficial nerve and you have suspected nerve injury, you can explore the nerve, but sometimes exploring the nerve is harmful to the nerve itself because you do have to mobilize the nerve and you are working around it and it's already contused or you have a neuropraxia and you can kind of make like a, like a second hit phenomenon on the nerve and kind of make it even go further into a neuropraxia. So you do have to be diligent about these. And typically what the OIT and ABOS will test on is like a a guy is in a is in an altercation with another who has a knife and he has a large laceration to his posterior upper arm and the patient is unable to extend his finger 
like what's the next best step and it'll be wash the wound and close explore the nerve follow the nerve for three months or whatever and the if it's a sharp injury with a knife you typically want to go and explore that and do an acute nerve repair or some sort of nerve graft at that point and kind of moving on what are some of the different surgical options for nerve injuries yeah, so you can do a neuropath neuropathy. Oh, I, I'm saying that wrong. Like I always mispronounce many words. <laughs> Neuropathy. So that's pretty much a nerve repair. You can do a nerve conduit, which is kind of like a, a tube that kind of helps helps allow the nerve regenerate. Because we talked about earlier when you're having Wallerian degeneration, one of the first you know steps and stages is getting that tube, and then also nerve grafting, where you have an entire nerve, which can mix sensory or just motor nerve, but some type of entire nerve, maybe in, that gets grafted. And we'll touch base on some of these here in a second. And so what are some, I guess, different types of neuropathy and technical considerations? So when you're doing a nerve repair, what are some different types of nerve repairs and technical considerations when you're doing them? Uh, yeah, I think it somewhat depends on your individual skill level and definitely the size of the nerve that you are repairing. You can do just an epineural repair, and that's typically done for these smaller nerves, like digital nerves or smaller nerves in like the foot and ankle that are singular named nerves because you're only repairing essentially fascicles that are all performing the same duties to each other. And so even if there is kind of cross communication through those fascicles, the nerve is essentially doing the same thing. You can do individual fascicular or group fascicular repair. And that's sometimes done in like Guillain's canal in the ulnar side of the hand where you have the ulnar nerve and then it branches into its three kind of separate groups where it, depending on where it is in Guillain's canal, you know that there's a motor branch and sensory branch or both. And what you typically want to avoid, even though our brain has some sort of plasticity that can reverse this or compensate for it, is you don't want to repair the primary sensory fascicle to the motor fascicle and vice versa, just because you are going to get that cross communication. And it's going to be very strange for the patient if they are able to heal that injury. So if you can repair sensory to sensory and motor to motor, it typically is considered better, but they aren't necessarily superior to one another. And then the technical considerations is one is attention-free repair is important. You don't want to put the nerve on stretch. And if the nerve is going to be on stretch, you have to either splint them in such a way that the nerve is tension-free or you do some sort of conduit or nerve grafting. You want to keep the wound clean. If the wound is contaminated, it's better to do serial washouts and debridements prior to a nerve repair, just because you want to go back to a nice clean wound bed. And by the time the nerve is repaired, you essentially want it to be a complete procedure. You're closing the skin and you don't plan on going back. And then a microscope can be useful to align the fascicles or just high powered loops. But a lot of people use a microscope if they have it available. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Are you an orthopedic resident? Then you need to know about ROCK. It's a new resident orthopedic core knowledge program 
developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, created for U.S. residency programs and free to residents, Rock covers 11 subspecialties and is filled with in-depth, comprehensive content and quizzes that have been authored and vetted by some of the leading experts in orthopedics. This all-in-one curriculum will give you the foundation and knowledge you need to become a successful board-certified orthopedic surgeon. And remember, access to Rock content is free to residents. Get started at rock.aos.org. So what is a nerve conduit and when is it used? Yeah, so this is, you know, nerve conduit is like a, a tube, like a biocompatible tube that allows the nerve to regenerate. We talk about nerve injuries and when there may be a gap. And so this is, can be useful for uh, sensory nerves with less than a 10 millimeter gap. And sometimes it can be used in gaps up to 25 millimeters. But again, so when we're thinking, you know, we're thinking that this patient has a nerve injury, uh, we want to take a look to see, well, how much gap do they have in, in millimeters? You know, just like you said, you want a tension-free repair if you're doing a nerve repair. Um, but if for some reason you can't just do a primary repair, you may choose to do a nerve conduit. And so, you know, conduits may be useful for, again, sensory nerves less with a less than a 10 millimeter gap. Sometimes you can use it in gaps up to 25 millimeters. What are the treatment options in patients with nerve injuries with a large gap, say like greater than a three centimeter gap or greater than 30 millimeters, same thing? Those patients... Even if you put a, a nerve conduit on there, typically that tunnel is too long for the nerve to grow back to itself and find itself. And so for those, you want to use a nerve graft and you can do an autograph such as a sural nerve folded on itself a couple of times to help recreate a kind of a nerve to nerve communication scheme. Yes, they will have to still complete that nerve signaling from proximal to distal, but at least it's done through a neural structure that has the kind of building block components to create that communication. Or you can use a decellularized allograft option, which really has just less donor site morbidity, but is not necessarily preferred over an autograph for the nerve, but also these nerve injuries, you have to really let these patients know that they're home run kind of injuries. They're not guaranteed. They are not something that you can just leave the OR, hang your hat on it and say, yep, that's definitely going to come back in 100% fashion. It's These patients have to understand that a nerve injury with a complete laceration and ones that have gaps and can't be tension-free, primarily closed, they they probably will have some sort of deficit and anything that they can get back is considered a win. So just be mindful of that when you're talking to patients about these nerve injuries. And after what time period from a nerve injury does the number of regenerating axons and response to growth factors decrease? Yeah. So after about six months, you start to get some degeneration of the distal motor end plate. So six months after a nerve injury, these number of you know, axons that start to regenerate, decrease, they don't respond to the growth factors as much. And again, that distal motor end plate degenerates. And that motor end plate again, which is where the nerve meets the muscle, this is back from biology from a, a long time ago. So Google, you know, motor end plates, if you need a refresh on what those are. And also, if y'all find this interesting and you like nerve injuries, check out our podcast with Dr. D. He dives deeply into uh, nerve injuries. But how long until there is irreversible 
muscle fibrosis after a nerve injury? That's 18 to 24 months. While the nerve injury itself results in motor end plates degenerating at six months, if you yourself do this or you are able to find someone that does some sort of targeted muscle renervation or something else, the irreversible muscle fibrosis sets in at about 18 to 24 months. So there is still time to cause some of that muscle to respond and kind of come back to life with some of these renervation techniques, but it is it is pretty difficult and those sort of specialists are fairly rare. Good to kind of know who that local one is in your area or somebody in your state that does it. And so what are some of the principles of nerve transfers? Yeah. So, and I remember reading on this and they used to have all those questions that talk about nerve transfers and it was just went over my head every time. So I'm going to talk about it for a little bit now, but pretty much you want to use an expendable motor nerve that is close to the denervated target muscle. So ideally you want a shorter distance than where you're transferring the nerve to maybe a little bit better. So again, you want to use an expendable motor nerve that is going to be close to the denervated target muscle. So what are some different, I guess, types of nerve transfer techniques? Yeah, the the most common ones, the two are going to be end to end, which makes sense. You're doing one end of one nerve to the other end of another nerve, and you're just slightly overlapping. You're kind of kind of inserting the smaller nerve into the larger nerve and then oversewing those fascicles and then oversewing the epineurium. And then you have an end to side, which is something that's also used in vascular surgery, where the end of one nerve is inserted into the recipient's open perineurium, which these are typically kind of considered supercharging the recovery. And again, I'm not the expert on this, I don't know necessarily which one is better, but it kind of just depends on the situation. But just know that if it says it in a question, there's either an end-to-end nerve transfer technique or an end-to-side, which the end-to-side is considered kind of the supercharged recovery of a nerve. I hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode. I hope that you learned something. I hope that you continue to learn something. I hope that you all have checked out our companion book, which is literally the notes that go along to everything that we talk about in this podcast. And uh, without further ado, we'll see you all next time. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. That would help out a bunch.